Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. The ship wasn't insured and the owners had abandoned it. So the pirates were then trying to extort money from the governments who wouldn't pay. Welcome to Stand Up Speak Up, a Canadian-made podcast highlighting important social issues and giving a voice to remarkable people. Jay Bahadur is an investigator for an international agency. He's a Canadian born in Toronto, Ontario, who went on to be a journalist and author, becoming well-known for his reporting on Somalian pirates. He got an inside look at Somali piracy after spending months in the country, living with pirates and venturing into areas that most journalists wouldn't dare visit. Jay documented his experience in a book titled The Pirates of Somalia, Inside Their Hidden World, which was released in 2011. Six years later, in 2017, a movie by the same name was released, which closely follows Jay's story. It's also known by an alternate title, Dabka, and was directed by Brian Buckley. Jay is portrayed on screen by Evan Peters, and the film also stars Barkhad Abdi, Melanie Griffith, and Al Pacino. I'm going to go to Somalia and write a book on the pirates. Somalia? AIDS. AIDS. Isn't that a problem there? I'm going to write about the pirates, Dad, not sleep with them. Okay. You know those outer body experiences where you look around and say, this shit isn't happening to me? My only one I could compare it to is when I got pulled over for speeding in Kitchener. Cop asked me to step out of the car because I had a blunt in the ashtray. What is a blunt? You know, grass, marijuana. That isn't tolerated in America. I'm Canadian. Sorry, brother. I forget. Well, please don't forget when I get shot here. I want my body sent to the right country. It's not USCIA. You've got to get the hell out of here. I'm a journalist. Don't shoot. I'm a journalist. It's okay. Don't shoot me. Congo needs somebody on his side. All of Somalia needs somebody on their side. Pirates of Somalia is available now to watch, and if you'd like to check it out, you may want to do that first and then come back to this podcast episode. But whether you've seen the movie or not, you can still enjoy this interview. We think you'll find Jay very interesting, and it doesn't contain any big spoilers that would prevent you from enjoying the movie at a later time. Jay joins us today from his home in Nairobi, Kenya, to share the story of his journey, including what it was like to have a movie made about his life how he got the pirates to open up and talk, whether or not the movie was true to his book, and more. The first thing is, how does it feel to get a movie made about you? Well, I didn't really believe it until about a month ago, or two months ago, whenever it actually came out in theaters. You know, when, when I wrote the book, a number, of, uh, a number of parties approached to discuss movie rights, and, you know, I, I talked to them and finally signed uh, the auction with this one company, uh, Hungry Man. But you never really expect it to happen. I mean, something like 2 to 5% of movies get made. So it wasn't something that was really part of my life until I think at the moment it became really part of my life was when they told me Al Pacino had signed on. <laughs> then it became really uh, quite real. But it's, I guess it was, it's very, in terms of how it felt, it's certainly very, you know, you, you're kind of exposing yourself, making yourself vulnerable, similar to writing a book, I guess. But in a way, in, with a book, you can control 
what's on the page. Nothing is going to be on the page, you know, in the end that you don't want to be there. But when you're signing sort of your, in a way, your, your life story to that point, there's a lot of factors you can't control. So that was very nerve wracking, obviously, because this is even more than the book. This was sort of how I was going to be portrayed to the world. So it was, it was exciting. It was nerve wracking. I love learning about the movie industry. Um, I've actually started <laughs> writing a screenplay now that I've been bitten by the, the bug. Um, on something totally unrelated, but uh, no, I really, I really enjoyed, uh, I really enjoyed the process, uh, getting to be part of the movie in a little way, uh, having a, a, you know a ten second cameo. I don't know if you noticed, but I get shot in the movie <laughs> in, in a nightmare sequence. Uh, I get executed on the runway. So all that was 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 really fun, and um, in the end, I was really happy with with the final product, and I was happy that they stayed true to the story and um, didn't didn't try to sensationalize it. Uh, or um, portray Somalia in a in a different way than I had portrayed it in the book, which was which was really um, really meant a lot to me. But there was no Al Pacino character, correct? And there was no girl that you were kind of in love with that you became connected with, right? So that so to, to answer the first part, the Al Pacino character was kind of a pastiche. His character and then the Avril Benoit character, who is a real person, of course, you know was sort of, they were kind of, uh, they had components. I guess it's not a pastiche, it's the opposite of a pastiche, where one character has been split into, split into multiple characters. I don't know what you call that. But yeah, those, those Alvaro Benoit and the Al Pacino character, Seymour, were kind of um, sort of different elements of the same person, uh, in a way. I did speak to a lot of journalists over the course of you know, deciding to go to Somalia and, and got their opinion. And the, the views put forth by the Al Pacino character certainly were sort of the consensus of what I heard from tough from the people I talked to, including Abel Benoit, in terms of uh, the Marian character. So her existence is very real. <laughs> She's Everything about her biography is real. She was the, the wife of the pirate lord, uh, Garad. She sold cat in the market. And she was, it, she was, her and Garad had this kind of thing called a pleasure marriage, where just kind of in Islam, a way of getting what. <laughs> getting around uh, actual marriage and just want, you know, if you want to have casual sex or whatnot, you get married for a temporary amount of time. And some people even argue you can divorce over text message. So um, that's, I think, the arrangement they had. But the, the romantic interest, yeah, that was that was a dramatic license. I actually had, I had a long-term girlfriend at the time uh, in Canada. So, uh, yeah, that, that aspect of it was, it was fictional. Well, I, w- I was thinking, like, are, were you relieved there was no sex scene? <laughs> Like, were you like, oh, God, if there's a sex scene, it's going to be like, everybody's going to see me. You know, because a lot of movies have, like, intense sex scenes. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, I thought that that's the way they might go with it, but they didn't. And uh, I, I didn't really think, you know, I, I wasn't really too worried about that, except maybe think, <laughs> maybe my ex-girlfriend would think that I had an affair thing <laughs> that I hadn't told her about. But, um, no, I, I wasn't really too worried about that. And in the end, actually, you know, when I... Uh, when I saw what they'd done with it and how they just made it come almost, you know, quite platonic really in the end, I found a lot of the people messaging me about, about the movie were still very intrigued with that story. You know, where is she, where is she now? What's become of her? And, uh, unfortunately I don't have too much to tell. <laughs> Next time I'm in, um, I'm in Somalia and Garroway, I have to uh, ask around to see, uh, see what became of her. <laughs> Cause there's a lot of people who want to know. So I know. Well, I, I did look up, kind of saying like it just did some of the interviews did kind of say it wasn't as romantic as they would have um 
said it was. But, you know, every, every story, every leading man needs a female interest, right? Isn't that the whole thing? And every leading woman needs a male interest. So they had to just check that off for doing their movie. Yeah, they, it, yeah it was funny. They, I think they were looking for that so intensely in the book. And there wasn't really anything to lead them anywhere uh, except this footnote about Marianne. So they actually created her out of a footnote. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. That's great. Now, okay. How did your mom feel about Melanie Griffiths playing her? Was she pretty excited? <laughs> it was funny. Both my parents at the, at the after party after the premiere in um, Tribeca in, in April were running around to to all the the, the cast and the crew and the, the director and producer at the party saying, no, I wouldn't have said this or I wouldn't have said that. Oh my God, really? They're probably like, yeah, this is why we don't have them on the set with us. <laughs> yeah, I was. I had to say to them, you know, it's not about you. It's not really even about re- replicating my character because the Evan Peters portrayal, uh, he went his own way with that. And they certainly went their own, their own way with my parents as well. And it was it was hard to explain that, you know, they stayed very true to the story, but they consciously didn't try and sort of, you know, replicate us as if they were doing biopics of us or anything like that. And that, that was totally fair. I mean, we're not, you know, well-known people. So uh, they made that decision and I, I was fine with that as long as the kind of the, the story kept its integrity. And, uh, and I think they very much, it very much did. So I think Evan Peters, for example, had, we had one Skype conversation before filming started. And I think after that conversation, he, <laughs> based on that, he, he decided to completely do his own thing. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, like, it, at least you got a hot guy playing you. <laughs> right? Like, weren't you like, uh, yeah. okay, good, I got a hot guy that's like pretty, pretty famous. Yeah, yeah, no, it was, uh, he, I think he, he did a good job of just, you know, it, it wasn't like, it, I didn't really see myself in that character. But again, that wasn't, that didn't bother me. It wasn't like, uh, that wasn't sort of a requirement for me by any means. And I think my parents, uh, for their part, probably expected more of a lifelike betrayal of themselves, even though they had never been interviewed for the movie or anything. So it was a strange expectation. Well, I think it's, I think it's hilarious because Melanie looks so far from a Canadian style mom. Do you know what I mean? Like I'm watching it. I'm like, okay, man, at least you should be wearing Lululemon or something. But I, I'm watching and I'm thinking, man, like you don't have the Canadian style figured out at all. Malibu, like Housewives of Malibu or something like that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was like, okay, well, maybe this will make Toronto seem like a much more um, California-esque place. Okay, what would you say was so different from your personality to the one portrayed in the movie? Like, what were you just like, that is so not me? And and versus, yeah, that is like me. Uh, I don't think, like, I was, I'm not nearly as flamboyant. I'm not as uh, as likely to sort of start screaming or losing my head in a way as sort of it's portrayed in the movie when put in really awkward situations or dangerous situations my instinct is more to get go introverted than to (laughs) (laughs) not not jump out of the car and be like take me on board to the small ship yeah exactly so that that whole scene was that whole scene was pretty accurate you know pretty pretty true to life in terms of what happened in that town but it, there wasn't any like yelling and screaming you know because that's very easy way to get shot and small yeah. 
In fact, when I when I saw the movie, I half thought that he was going to get shot. <laughs> You're like, oh shit! Like this is going bad. Even though I know how, how it ends, <laughs> but uh, anyway. What I find interesting is that you titled the books actually "Pirates," but that wasn't how they wanted to be called. Did you title it "The Pirates of Somalia" just because you knew that's what would get more sales? Like, were you ever tempted to not call it "The Pirates"? The thing is that. It's it's very it's uh, it's not really up to the author to be honest. Uh, titles of the book. I mean, the publishers kind of. I mean, they of course take your input, but in the end, they'll pick what they think is going to sell well. So it actually does have a different title in the UK market. It's called Deadly Waters there because for whatever reason that the UK editors thought that that would perform better in their market, and it's called Deadly Waters in Australia as well. But ultimately, you know, I, I went back and forth with the editors for months about, months about, about the title. Um, the original title, the working title, was The Pirates of Puntland, which I thought worked better as a sort of a liberation until they pointed out that no one knows what Puntland is. So, <laughs> But yeah, really, um, we, I, I can't really sort of t- tell you how many or overstate how many hours we put into trying to think of a title different than, more interesting than The Pirates of Somalia. But in the end, it was... It, it checked the boxes, <laughs> you know. So, uh, yeah, that's what we went with, at least in the uh, Canadian and American markets. Well, it's definitely catchy. I mean, everybody is fascinated by pirates for, for centuries and centuries, right? So everybody loves a good pirate story. It's just interesting how they didn't, they don't see themselves as pirates. They see themselves as like protectors of the sea, supporting the community. Do they still see themselves like that, do you think? Well, I mean, there hasn't been too much pirate activity lately. In my current job, I do I do do some work on what's left of piracy. So there were a few attacks last year. I interviewed some pirates, and certainly they still have that narrative of we were fishermen. In most cases, they don't even admit that they did anything wrong. They just say we were fishermen, and we were sort of um, attacked by whoever and captured and whatnot. So that, that narrative is still, from what I can see, is still there. But yeah, that, I think the... The view of, of many Somali Somalis is that yes, they were protecting their seas. I think, to that's not my view. So if I were to put that on on a title, not only would it not sell well, but I think it would sort of be disingenuous in terms of what I actually what I actually think and, and believe based on the work I did. Um, and also, a, a title like "The Saviors of the Sea of Somalia" doesn't quite. No. <laughs> doesn't. no. And it would certainly be um, yeah. I think it would, it would not represent you know, the, what the book argues and what I think. Do you have any friends still, like any of your friends that you met over there, or any pirates that you would call a friend that you could still call up? And I mean, do you still have quite a few contacts out there? Um, I, I certainly have a lot of contacts in Somalia. In terms of the pirates, there's one I want to, Boya, who's in the movie very prominently. Last I heard, I go to Garaway a lot, which is his hometown. And, um, for work, so I currently go, go there, you know, every so often for work. And uh, last I heard, he he become blind and was a preacher, was an imam in a, in a mosque in Garoway. So that to me is like quite an interesting development. And I, <laughs> I, uh, I was I was hoping to look him up. I haven't been able to yet. But next time I'm there, I'm going to try and meet up with him uh, because he was certainly the one with the most sort of moral depth. And you know, he he was older. He was he was kind of had more. I'd, yeah, I'd say he was a more sympathetic character than many of the pirates who came out, came around later as in he was actually a fisherman. He, he actually had his livelihood disrupted by, by foreign fishers and, and this kind of thing. And I think he would genuinely, he was trying to reform and, um, 
I, I don't know what happened to him. He was, uh, as reported in the movie, he was was uh, arrested and, and put in jail for about three or four years and then released. And uh, as I said, now he apparently is a, is a, is a preacher. So um, that's he's someone I definitely want to follow up with. Um, Garat, the other main pirate uh, in the movie, was, um, was killed some years ago on, on a mission. He was one of the few kingpins who would still go out at sea and um, participate in the hijackings. And he was killed by, uh, by the Iranian Navy some years ago. So, yeah, most of the other guys I interviewed were, were kind of lower down and uh, didn't, I guess, make as much of an impression on me. So, in, in short, I, I don't really keep, keep tabs on, on, on the pirates, but I do obviously still have many contacts and friends in, in Puntland in general. And I still work there frequently. And the drug that you talk about a lot, Kata, that they sell in the market, what, what is it like? Like, how does, what would it compare to in our drug terms? It's, it's like somewhere between coffee and cocaine, something like that. Okay, okay. Uh, it's just like, it's just a stimulant. It's, uh, it makes you very talkative, uh, you know, makes you sweat, makes you like grind your teeth, that kind of thing. But in terms of a drug, I mean, it's, it's, it's quite vile to, to taste to eat and you really have to be committed to it so, uh, and then chew it for hours and hours and hours so I wouldn't recommend it necessarily <laughs> so. well if so what why why do they take it does it give them energy like does it relax you because it doesn't seem relaxing the way you're explaining it it seems like it makes you agitated or more intense definitely makes people agitated it, it actually there's been some studies into into the effect of cod and just in conflict in Somalia and, uh, because these militias are often um, are often shooting cot regularly, and it certainly, I think, well, the argument's been made very convincingly that it certainly uh, resulted in sort of increased pirate uh, violence, brutality towards the crews. But it also creates a sense of euphoria. You know, it certainly gives energy, makes talking more enjoyable. Gives, like I said, a mild euphoria. So it's it's a drug, people. You know, and, and it's addictive. So if uh, if you're doing it every day, you might need it just to be normal. It's, it's the case for a lot of drugs. You know, you might feel depressed or or not able to function if you don't have it. So, um, yeah, and there's just not too much else available in Somalia. You know, obviously alcohol is, is extremely limited and very taboo. You mentioned in the in the movie and in your book that it was good to to give to the pirates so they would talk more, but would it also make them, as you said, more violent? Like, would it ever make them more unpredictable for you when they would be offered kata? I mean, no, we would be in just very relaxed situations, so I don't think it would go that way. I'm having a lounge under a tree or in a living room. It wasn't in a tense situation, any tense situation. So I think, I just think it would have a a chance of exacerbating things if people were stressed, like if they're sitting on a ship, can't, you know, haven't been able to leave for months, you know, or are being buzzed by American helicopters, that kind of thing. That's sort of where it might have a chance to, or, or have an effect of, of creating violence or, or making someone more unpredictable. What was your tactic to get the pirates to talk to you? How would you, how would you engage the conversation? Um, well, the first thing was, uh, as portrayed in the movie, I was essentially being hosted by the, the cousins of, of these pirates. And so the Parole family was, uh, I'm not saying they were pirates, but they with the same subclan as many of the early pirates. So first off, I was a guest, sort of a guest of their of, of their um, of their clan and, and, and the president of the country, who, who not the country but of Puntland, uh, who was hosting me or his family was. So there was that. And in terms of trying to engage them, I mean, also as portrayed in the movie, it was sort of key not to just say 
call them pirates and, <laughs> and say, we doing all this. It, you, know, you know, just like just like anyone, or uh, certainly any any person engaged in, in criminal or illicit activity, you might start by saying, asking about their life, early life, their families, you know, why they went down this road, and you know, not be accusatory, like just be, you know, just be interested in their lives. And you know, generally, if you're interested in someone's life, um, you know, they like talking. You know, look at you, look at you and me, right? <laughs> uh, so. No, people like talking about their lives, and um, yeah, I think I certainly I can't even begin to think of all the mistakes I made uh, over there. But um, I think I definitely over the the weeks and months developed a, a better interviewing technique where I was uh, more able to get them to open up. In the movie, they touch on when you know you were feeling stressed and and anxious. What were the times when you felt? I can't do this anymore. I'm like so done. I want to get out of here. I'm depressed. Nothing's going my way. What am I doing? It was actually, I mean, the, the movie kind of portrayed me as locked in a room. And while it wasn't exactly like that, it wasn't, you know, in a way. <laughs> because there were days and days I would sit without being even being able to leave the room. You know, I, I would, you know, I, before, before going to Somalia, I smoked occasionally, but now I, there I really started like chain smoking almost because I was so, so on edge, couldn't leave, couldn't do anything. And part of the problem was like, talk about naivete. Uh, you know, I didn't even bring my own phone. Like I didn't have my own phone for the first trip I was there. I didn't have my own SIM. So I was solely relying on other people to like make calls for me. I mean, it was ridiculous looking back. And, uh, yeah, there, there, there were certainly times when, when I thought, yeah, this isn't going anywhere. Um, and, and I wanted to leave. I would, you know, beg people just to take me out for a walk or a run or, or something. Um, you know, I, I would exercise, back home, I'd exercise regularly. I couldn't exercise really in Somalia. So that all added up. The internet barely worked. So it was really hard to even, uh, really hard to even do research, you know, on my computer. Um, so yeah, it was it was it was tough at times, but it was also uh, the times that were things did happen. You know, then they really happened fast and furious. So it was always kind of looking forward to the next time I'd be able to go out. <laughs> I guess it was like being in prison in a way. The uh, the, the the family that hosted me, the Farole family, they were absolutely paranoid about anything happening to me, and rightfully so because it was. Uh, you know, it would it would come back to them, and my partner's father was the president of Putnam, so he was. They were all very conscious of creating some sort of incident, and uh, no, I'm you know I'm, I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful that they were they, they were very protective. When you were out there and you had to learn all these coping skills for dealing with all this discomfort, I guess who were you when you came back? So who was Jay pre going and doing all this, and then post Jay? Well, I, I know I was a lot. Lighter. I was about forty pounds lighter, which I usually <laughs> So physically, that's how things change when you're when you're not eating very much and you're chain smoking. I don't know. I think I felt like a journalist coming back. You know, when I went in there, I felt like I was uh, sort of a fraud, a complete uh, uh, interloper in a way, as is expressed in the movie. And when I came back, I felt like I was part of that journalist community in a way, and I had an identity. And then when I went to Kenya in December, after I'd spent uh, all that time in Somalia, and I was sort of welcomed into the journalist community here. That really sealed the deal, and I guess that's what really, in a way, attracted me to Kenya as well. Is that I felt part of the of the community for the, you know, first time in terms of um, community of, uh, of professionals. You know, like uh, I had an identity, and I knew what I was, and um, I could tell people I was a journalist. And I wasn't completely, uh, 
you know, just full of, full of it. So, um, yeah, I guess that was probably the biggest change. Certainly an increase in confidence and increase in, um, in sort of belief in, in where my future was going. So that was probably the biggest change, thinking back. Do you think this movie has opened new doors for you? Um, well, like I said, I think I'm working on a screenplay, and if, if uh, well, I should I hope finish it soon. <laughs> when I do, um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm hoping to kind of use some of the connections I made uh, with this movie, um, trying to trying to get it on the right desks. Um, but this is just a side project. It's not something I, I see myself doing long term. Uh, it was just kind of a desire to get back into writing after, a, or a creative writing right? after, a, uh, after kind of a, quite a long stint of, of not doing any. So. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an avenue that I want to pursue, and who knows where it'll go, but uh, it's not something I'm betting my future on or anything. Just a quick interjection. I'm Zach Tolstoy, one of the founders of Stand Up Speak Up. Our podcast is just one part of the Stand Up Speak Up brand. We are supported by an online store of the same name, where we sell a variety of artisan products. We have an ongoing blog series with over a dozen contributors, and we offer a series of interactive workshops. Throughout the different iterations of Stand Up Speak Up, our core message and purpose have always been the same. To create a site that allows our customers and us more opportunities to speak up about and support causes, organizations, and groups that we're passionate about, and that of course could use additional support. My mother and I have learned about allyship over the years from what feels like a thousand and one places and people. We want to encourage members of this fantastic Stand Up Speak Up community to come along and learn with us. So along with our team, we created this workshop featuring videos, articles, and exercises that have really helped the two of us in our own journey towards allyship. Don't worry, it doesn't cost any money and you don't need to make an account to access the information. We want to make our workshop as accessible as possible because we believe in our message and understand the importance of spreading awareness. The Ally Workshop is split into eight parts, including interactive quizzes and helpful videos. It's intended to introduce you to new skills and courses of action in the world of allyship. The workshop is easy to use and can be done entirely on your cell phone, tablet, or computer at your own pace. With each of the eight sections, taking an average of about 15 minutes or so to complete, or a breezy couple hours on a Sunday afternoon. In just a moment, we'll get back to Jay as he gives some further insight on Somali pirates and a story of a ship being overtaken where the owners refuse to pay up. First, wanted to quickly let you know about a way that you can help support what we do here on the Stand Up Speak Up podcast, and that is to leave us a quick review on iTunes. It doesn't cost you a cent, but it does help us grow our audience. We're doing very well on the iTunes charts, so thank you very much for listening each week. And to leave a review, just click on to the Stand Up Speak Up page on iTunes. We hope that you'll give us a five-star rating and leave a sentence or two about why you enjoy the podcast. And of course, we are always open to suggestions and ideas for guests as well. We're always listening on Facebook at Stand Up Speak Up Podcast. Thank you very much. And now back to Carla's interview with Jay Bahadur. How many of the Somali pirates like actually murdered other people? Or, or what, what did they kill people? There was a few instances where, where crew members were actually executed. Um, I guess it depends what you mean by 
there were the different levels of, of killing, I guess. So in one case, a ship that I was looking at, in fact, a crew member had been shot in boarding. So he'd been hit by a stray bullet, I think, or at least a bullet not, not intended to directly hit and hurt someone, but had been hit. And I can't remember if he, he was killed or not. There are a few cases where yeah, people were actually executed as a message. And then there were cases where people were driven, crew members were driven to suicide. So that would consider that a form of murder. Um, you had cases where people were kept for years and died of illness. Again, would be a, a form of murder, obviously. So there are different levels of, of what pirates, you know, the, the consequences of, of their actions were. But it wasn't common for, for them to actually intentionally kill people. So when you talk about driven to suicide, um, driven to suicide just because the people felt there was no hope when the pirates came on board and they were being starved? or Well, this uh, the one the example I'm thinking of, it was a case uh, where, where they had been on board for two years or something, and uh, I guess the guy, you know, understandably, just broke and, uh, and killed himself. I, I don't think it was a, over something in particular, aside the fact that he had been held on the ship for two years. So he was held on the ship. What, what country was he from? Uh, I don't remember. It may have been Pakistan or India. Pac- okay, interesting. So they And why didn't they let him go? They were waiting for the money to come? I mean, what? I mean, after two years, wouldn't you kind of be like, hmm? Yeah, again, good question. I think in this particular case, um, the ship wasn't insured and the owners had abandoned it. So the thing is, the pirates were then trying to extort money from the, the governments uh, who wouldn't pay. And so in the end, I think what happened was um, there was some private fundraising and they finally got them off. But um, yeah, I mean, I guess they, they had been abandoned. And uh, I guess this particular person, there may have been more than maybe two people that committed suicide, one or two who uh, I guess didn't really hold out any hope. But yeah, that was a rare case. I mean, it, it, was, it was a rare case. And the pirates, why they didn't let it go is because the problem is... Um, when they, uh, first, they don't really believe that there's no money. So if they're told that this is a shipping company, um, doesn't have insurance or they've abandoned it, they won't believe it, number one. Number two, they, they owe people because during the whole operation, they're taking credit to buy cot, to buy food, other supplies, fuel. So they owe potentially hundreds of thousands of dollars over the course of this time and they need to pay it back. So in a way, their back, their backs are against the wall. So, there were a number of cases um, like this where the ship was abandoned, which really you saw the, the worst kind of the worst effects and consequences of, of, of piracy. You know, and what about sexual assault in the pirates? Would that happen? How, how prevalent would that be? Uh, I mean, very few merchant mariners are women. So that's one thing in terms of sexual assault against men. I'm not sure. I did one case where I was following the Victoria, which is the ship that's portrayed off ale in the movie did have a woman on board and I asked about that and uh, they told me, no, they never, they never bothered her. They treated her with respect. And blah, blah, blah. In fact, there was, I think there was um, at one point there was a pirate manual discovered on board. I can't remember the details, but it was some like code of conduct that, that some pirates had put together for their crew. And one of the things was like, don't sexually abuse anyone. So I don't know how faithfully that was carried out or how widespread there was, that was, but I, I certainly didn't hear there's no, there are no cases that stick out in my mind of sexual assault, but obviously that's not saying it didn't happen. And the, the cruise ships, many times they have the water that sprays out, and as they go through the waters, do they? Do you know of cases where they attack cruise ships? 
Yeah, early on there was a few where they they kind of fired some RPGs at cruise ships. I can't. Remember, I don't think any cruise ships were were hijacked, but then I imagine very that was very early on. So afterwards, I imagine they just completely avoided the area. Would be my guess. There's no. I don't think any cruise company would even take a slight chance of, of having uh, you know, having a boat hijacked with, with hundreds of them. So can can I ask you what your screenplay is about? Are you allowed to give an idea or no? Yeah, yeah. I'm writing about a. Uh, so it's a historical drama set in uh, ancient Rome, uh, but it's about a hypothetical Roman intelligence service set in the reign of Caligula. So essentially, uh, it's about a couple of Roman spies, who, um, and then they're caught up in this whole, whole uh, web to assassinate Caligula. So it's just a little passion of mine, Roman history, so I'm uh, just indulging in a little, a little fantasy. We'll put links to find out more about Jay and follow the updates on his screenplay in the show notes for this episode at StandUpSpeakUpBlog.com, along with links to his book and the movie trailer. Thanks for listening to Stand Up Speak Up, and in our bonus content today, our quick wrap-up discussion for this episode as Carla shares what got her interested in Jay's story and why she is fascinated by investigative journalism. Low, when you're feeling low, when you just don't know If your heart's been broke and you feel like you're all alone If you need something to believe in If you're looking for a light to guide you home Just look inside, your light is shining brighter than you know And you should know, I'm never gonna let you down I'm always gonna build you up when you're feeling lost, I will always find your love. Never gonna walk away. I'm always gonna have your back. And if nothing else, you can always count on that. When you need me, I promise I will never let you down.
Thanks for listening to our music selection today. That was Ain't Never Gonna Let You Down, performed by Linda Nuska. This was pretty fascinating because up front, when I first, you know, you first brought this story to me about Jay, I assumed it all sounded crazy because he went to get an inside look at these pirates' lives. And I just thought, how do you do that without getting killed? So it was a dangerous situation. But what did you think of how he, how it came across? It wasn't that crazy it didn't seem afterwards they would actually talk to him yeah i think he's probably very charismatic and he's probably very much a chameleon that can um probably be in any situation and talk his way through it and he's probably very unassuming i think because he was the first journalist to ever get to talk to pirates like none of the big guys had ever done that before that that's what i found so fascinating about his story is that he was just so tenacious and just so driven and so determined and he was willing to put himself um on the line you know his own his own life on the line to get the story yeah, i was thinking that has to be uh, had to be nerve-wracking for his parents even because he said in the interview how there was of course not great internet over there a lot of the times so he was just gone for weeks and months at a time and not really in contact that much with home. I mean, when I, when I first watched the movie, like Al and I were home and we were just, Al's my husband and we couldn't find a movie to agree on. So I kind of, we picked that one. And as soon as I heard that he was Canadian, I got super interested because I love when Canadians do cool stuff, right? Who doesn't, right? When it's a Canadian, I'm like, Oh my God, like, wow. And he's from my hometown even better. Right. And I just was like, so impressed that he he saw that he just couldn't make inroads in his own country and he needed to do something completely insane to move up the ladder as a journalist. And I guess part of me saw myself like that when I had to move to China to make inroads in telecom. You know, like I knew that Canada was kind of a boring country business-wise. They weren't very, uh, I guess, risky. They don't really have that kind of maverick, fearless attitude here. So I felt I had to even leave the country at his same age. We both left our countries in the same age. Now, I didn't go into a uh, pirate situation. And so I guess for him doing that, I just like totally was impressed by him. Like I was like, wow, he kicks ass. Like what a cool guy. The lengths he was willing to go to, to uh, get his story. Yeah, my husband was like, what a stupid guy. How can that be? How can you be so impressed, Carla? The guy, like, imagine his parents freaking out. doing what he, Like, he didn't even think of anybody else's feelings, how that would impact them. But I just kept going, oh, man, that's great. You know, he really just, I don't know, like, lived dangerously, I guess. I'm drawing some correlation here to the uh, while back when we did the Finding Shelley series and a certain podcast host was climbing through the basements of crack houses. <laughs> I know. I know. I mean, I think that I feel like in this, it's really strange, but I feel like a big part of journalism is investigative journalism. And I'll never consider myself a journalist. Obviously, I, I don't consider myself that. But I feel like investigative journalism is really the real journalism. And I know that a lot of people would give me flack for that. I just feel like doing something that somebody else wouldn't do to tell a story is like super cool. You know, like, like I, sometimes I think like, and I know that maybe I can't do this, but in my mind, I dream of a time that I could go and do um, investigative journalism on female car- 
cartel leaders. So females that are super high in um, the criminal underworld, and because it's very male dominated, the criminal underworld, and but yet there are a few females who made it to the top, and I would just love to interview them and um, see how they work and just understand how they were able to get to the top. That would be my ultimate investigative piece. It is fascinating to finally learn about a lot of these things that are out there that we can't access for whatever reason, like in these cases, it's just too dangerous or, or nobody looked. So to have someone go in and take the risk and get that uh, that story to share with everyone that we've never really heard before, of course, you know, uh, like in Jay's case, it was just, it was very well received. He had a lot of response from it. Everybody wanted to talk to him and, you know, ended up in, into a movie. Yeah. And deservingly so, because I think, um, I, I believe that investigative journalism should be should be paid for because a journalist telling a story is very different than a lawyer telling a story or a police telling a story or a somebody that works in the front lines telling the story. It, it comes from a di- very different perspective, usually of no judgment. Like he didn't really take a judgment, good or bad, about the pirates. Like he never... He wasn't like he'd be a police officer saying like what they did was wrong or be a government official that was like challenging what they were doing. He was just telling them, he was just telling the audience like the reality of the situation. That's what's so cool about journalism and investigative journalism. Thanks again for listening to Stand Up Speak Up. This has been our interview with Jay Bahadur. You can find us online at standupspeakupblog.com and we'll see you next time. Come on a journey like no other, where you will discover many rogues that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress-free life. And the beauty is, you don't need any vacation time for this adventure. The journey will come to you. Join Avery Rich on your very own journey into yoga. Along the way, she will demystify yoga poses and guide you into a yoga posture or short sequence, all in less than 15 minutes. You have nothing to lose but stress. The Journey Into Yoga podcast. It's not for people who like yoga. It's for people who don't like yoga. Follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at AveryRich.com.